This is the Visit the Zoo podcast, episode number 35. Today we hear about what killed the dinosaurs and a lot more. Everybody and welcome to the Visit the Zoo podcast. And this is episode number 35. And I am your host, Frederick Fishman. And I am the author of a 120 Animal 12 book Visit the Zoo series that is available on Kindle and in print, audiobook, and DVD. And the anthology, by the way, was recently updated and released, and it includes all 12 books into one volume. So you may want to check that out on Amazon. And I want to thank you again for joining me in this episode. We've got a special animal description today and it's a broad view of life on this planet and includes the entire animal world and it starts with the dinosaurs and the world of man. So I hope that you'll join me for that, that the dinosaurs ruled for over 250 million years and then 65 million years ago an asteroid the size of Mount Everest slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico and for Approximately three years, the earth was shrouded in clouds from fire and debris that was stirred up by the asteroid hit. Like I said, the uh, the dinos lived 250 million years, and humans have lived 100,000 years. So you can see that they dominated the entire globe, and their numbers were in the billions as far as how many dinosaurs roamed the earth. So that'll be a very interesting description that I'll read for you today, and that'll be a live read as well. We have three websites that I hope that you will visit. The first is our main website, which is zooanimals.info. And animals is plural. That's zooanimals.info. Lots of links and information on that website, so you may want to check it out. And then my author website is Frederick Fishman, spelled F-I-C-H-M-A-N.com, frederickfishman.com. And if you want to help and support everything we do here on Visit the Zoo, you may want to check out our Patreon site at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash visit the zoo. And I have one more announcement too. We've started something new and that's we've got a merch line. We've got merchandise and apparel that we've started to sell. We are just at the very beginning of this and there's only one design up and I'm going to have several dozen up that you can put on t-shirts and mugs and hoodies and whatever else that you can think of from a company that's very well established called Zazzle. They provide uh, merchandise to Disney and to Warner Brothers and many other name brands. So check that out at www.zazzle, that's spelled Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com slash Zooswear. And that's spelled Z-O-O-Z-W-E-A-R, Zooswear. That's the name that I've given the apparel branch of what we do here. And finally, I did did want to mention that we are going to play towards the end of the episode, Chapter 2, from my fiction Visit the Zoo novel called Noah, An Animal Adventure Fantasy. And we're going to play Chapter 2 for you today on this version of Visit the Zoo, episode number 35. Okay, enough for all the announcements. Let's get started. I'm just going to be reading one zoo news story today, one animal story today, because we have so much going on throughout this episode. So I I did want to read this one because I saw it and I thought, okay, 
because I've had a little experience with it. This is a story uh, in the newspaper, a local uh, newspaper here. It says a South Texas man almost died after he was bitten by the head of a rattlesnake he just decapitated. The incident occurred on May the 21st as Milo and Jennifer Sutcliffe were doing yard work at their home near Lake Corpus Christi. Jennifer Sutcliffe said her husband found a four-foot rattlesnake and hacked off its head with a shovel. As he bent down to pick up the remains, he was bitten by the severed head. Sutcliffe said she called 911 and began driving her husband the 45 miles to the Corpus Christi Hospital. He began having seizures, losing his vision and bleeding internally, and was airlifted the rest of the way. Sutcliffe said her husband needed 26 doses of antivenom, where a normal patient gets two or four. He's in stable condition. One time we had a rattlesnake come into our yard, and I had the uh, smarts not to use a shovel on it, but to call the fire department, and they did the same thing. They cut off the head, and they told me to bury the head deep with the shovel. Don't touch it. Don't pick it up because it can bite. Sure enough, Mr. Sutcliffe found out the hard way. Okay, let's go to our mystery animal sounds now. And what I'm going to do is play three animal sounds. Now I'll see if you can guess what it is that these animals are. And later on in the episode, we'll reveal to you what these animals are and also a little bit about them. Now, two of these animals, I'm going to play an adult version of the animal and a baby version of this animal. So you're going to hear two separate sounds. So let's start off first with this sound from an animal. Let's hear the adult version. Okay, this is sound number two. This is the baby version of this animal. Let me play that again for you. All right, and here is the adult version. fast, don't they? And finally, here is our third mystery animal sound. All right, one more time again. And those are our three mystery animal sounds for today. All right, then we come to the animal description part of uh, the episode, and I, I usually just play for you a piece from one of the recorded audiobooks from the Visit the Zoo series, but I came across an article that really had a lot of impact for me, and it really kind of solidified and also quantified what it is that happened to the dinosaurs and how it relates to man. This article was written by Steve Brusate, and a little bit about him. He's a paleontologist, and he's on the faculty of the School of Geosciences at the University of Edinburgh. His new book, The Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, Telling the Story of Dinosaurs from Their Origin to Extinction, was just published by William Morrow. The opinions expressed in this commentary that I will be reading to you are his. The desert of northwestern Mexico, in the vicinity of Four Corners, is my special place. The high-altitude sun sparkles off the badlands, illuminating rock pastels of red, green, 
brown that seemed to extend indefinitely in all directions. No wonder that Georgia O'Keeffe, who painted for decades, found this landscape as her muse. Not many people live here, making it feel like a remote backwater within the world's most industrialized country. But that's the way I like it. I'm a paleontologist, and I visit here at least once a year to hunt for fossils of dinosaurs and other long-extinct creatures. The fewer buildings, roads, and houses to cover up the treasure we seek, the better. Most of the candy-striped badlands in this part of Mexico are carved from rocks laid down in rivers and lakes between about 84 to 56 million years ago. These were lush environments teeming with life during a time when the earth was much warmer and there was no ice caps on the poles. Bones, teeth, shells, and other parts of animals would often get buried in mud or sand and turned to stone, becoming the fossils that provide the only clues that these lost worlds ever existed. You can find many dinosaurs here. We often come across the railroad spiked teeth of a T-Rex and the gargantuan limb bones of long-necked seropods of the brontosaurus mold, some of which weighed more than a Boeing 737, easily making them the largest animals to ever thunder across the land. We find the skull domes that horse-sized omnivores called pachycephalosaurs used to headbutt each other, and the jaws that horned and duck-billed dinosaurs sliced up plants with, so many species, big and small, living together. I usually prospect these wonderful colorful hills with one of my best friends in science, Tom Williamson, a curator at the New York Museum of Natural History and Science in Albuquerque. Sometimes we walk for days and can't get away from the dinosaur bones because they are so common. By now, we know the best places to find them. A layer cake series of rock strata formed during the very end of the Cretaceous period. 84 to 66 million years ago. It appeared that dinosaurs would keep on ruling the world forever as they had done for over 150 million years. You can read the layers like pages in a novel and although the characters are fascinating, the story is fairly uneventful. During this whole stretch of time, dinosaurs were in control. History seemed to be standing still and it appeared that dinosaurs would keep on ruling the world forever as they had done for 150 million years. But then, suddenly, their bones disappear. We can pinpoint the exact place in the rock sequence. It's where the cyclical mudstones and sandstones, records of that stable Cretaceous world, abruptly give way to coarser, boulder-strewn rocks characteristic of fast-moving currents and corrosive storms. Something dramatic happened to the local environment, and the dinosaurs were gone. The same pattern is seen halfway around the world in the chalky colored limestones of Gubbio, Italy. Underneath a medieval aqueduct that clings to the sides of a deep gorge, the geologist Walter Alvarez noted that the Cretaceous rocks at the bottom of the canyon are chock full of small fossils of ocean plankton. Above these rocks, however, are nearly barren limestones sprinkled with a few tiny, simple-looking fossils. The knife-edge separation between these rocks is a dainty strip of clay, only about a half inch thick. The clay is a cockpit voice recorder that reveals the fate of the plankton and the dinosaurs. It is full of iridium, an element common in outer space, but rare on Earth. It was delivered by a six-mile-wide asteroid the size of Mount Everest, 
which was moving faster than a jetliner when it collided with Earth 66 million years ago, punching a crater more than 100 miles wide and causing a chain reaction of volcanoes, wildfires, tsunamis, earthquakes, and climate change that wiped out some 70% of all living things. The dinosaurs couldn't cope. All of them, except for a few birds, died. They were soon replaced, and we see the evidence in New Mexico. The chaotic boulder-filled rock layer quickly gives way to the same types of mudstones and sandstones that had been formed during the Cretaceous, a sign that environments returned to normal within a few thousand years. There are no dinosaur bones to be found in these new Paleocene-aged rocks 66 to 56 million years ago. Instead, there are countless jaws, teeth, skeletons of the things that took over from the dinosaurs, the species that went on to start the next great dynasty of Earth history, mammals. It's a sobering story and one of relevance to us today, as our climate and environment are changing rapidly. Just within the last few months, studies have shown that sea level is rising twice as fast as we thought. The Antarctic sheets are melting at alarming rates and the temperature is increasing so fast that humans may make the earth warmer than it has been for more than 50 million years. There are consequences to all of this upheaval. We are in the age of the so-called sixth extinction with species dying out at hundreds or thousands of times the usual rate, faster perhaps than the five mass extinctions of Earth history, including one that killed the dinosaurs. We're used to thinking of them as movie monsters, skeletons that wild tourists at museums, and objects of childhood fascination. But they are so much more than that. They were real, living, breathing, and evolving animals that had to deal with rising and falling temperatures, fluctuating sea levels, volcanoes, and asteroids. After all, none of the environmental changes going on today is new. The earth has been through them before, and dinosaurs and other extinct animals can tell the story of what happened, what died, what survived, how long it took to recover. Among the mammals that Tom Wilkinson has discovered in those dinosaur-free post-extinction rocks in New Mexico is a skeleton of a puppy-sized creature called a Torionia. It had a slender body, gangly limbs, and long fingers and toes, and you can almost envision it could be leaping through trees. It is one of the oldest primates, a fairly close cousin of ours, and a reminder that we humans had ancestors that were on that terrible day that saw the rock fall from the sky that survived the cataclysm while dinosaurs did not. Probably because they were small, agile, adaptable, and able to eat many types of foods. There is something almost poetic about it. In a sense, we are dinosaurs. Before creatures like Toriona started the domino chain of evolution that led to humans, the dinosaurs ruled. They evolved superpowers like big brains, keen senses, and the ability to grow to enormous sizes. There were probably many billions of them living in all corners of the globe that woke up to that day 66 million years ago, confident of their undisputed place at the pinnacle of nature. We humans now wear the crown that once belonged to the dinosaurs. We are confident 
of our place at the pinnacle of creation, even as our actions are rapidly changing the planet around us. It leaves me uneasy, and a troubling thought lingers as I walk through the New Mexico scrublands, seeing the bones of dinosaurs give way so suddenly to the fossils of Torionia and other mammals. If it could happen to dinosaurs, could it also happen to us? Dinosaurs, of course, had no way to prevent the asteroid that killed them. But we have a choice. We can still stop or at least slow down pumping toxins into the atmosphere. Our choice will dictate whether we are really the dinosaurs, whether we go the way of T-Rex and Triceratops, or whether we've learned from this sad story. All right, there's a little bit about the dinosaurs and man and what's going to be happening in the future. Who knows? But let's come back to the present and talk about the mystery animal sounds that I played for you earlier. I'm going to play them again, and then I'll tell you a little bit about these animals. Well, let me go to the first animal sound, and this is the baby version of this animal. And here's the adult version. I'm sure many of you heard a raccoon scratching at your door or rummaging around your trash can. They are native to North America, but now they are found also in Japan and Europe, obviously transported there. They live where humans live because that is where they find their food. And they will find it, as you know, if given the opportunity. They are relentless. They are omnivorous, which means they will eat just about anything that's edible. They live about 20 years, and they're known for their black patches of fur around their eyes. They're about 16 to 28 inches in length, and they weigh between 8 and 20 pounds. Okay, that is the raccoon. Now let's go to our next mystery animal sound, and let's see if you guessed what it was. Here's the baby version first. Let me play it again. Here's the adult version. Well, that's a big cat, obviously. And that particular cat is a jaguar. It's a large cat, and it has ranges in North, Central, and South America. But they are very rare in their sighting and declining elsewhere as their habitat shrinks. It's the third largest big cat after the lion and the tiger. They love to swim, but they're solitary animals who stalk and ambush as predators. And they are top of their food chain. They have a powerful bite and crush, and they're good crawlers and climbers. They're hunted for their beautiful mottled coat. They are high in the mythology of the Aztec and the Mayans. They weigh between 124 and 211 pounds, However, they can be as large as 350 pounds. Those would be the males. Females are slightly smaller. They live in marshes, in forests. Human attacks are rare, but not impossible. That is the jaguar. Let's go to our final animal mystery sound. Let me see if you guessed it. One more time, let me play it. That's a group of hyena that you heard, and these are African hunters who will take down and scavenge just about anything on four legs that runs or walks 
on the African plain. The spotted hyena are generally thought of poorly by humans because of their voracious appetites and their ability to rip and tear at their prey, devouring just about anything that remains. And because they hunt basically the same prey as lions, the two species have been at each other's throats for all time. They can run and chase down their prey at a speed of about 20, excuse me, 40 miles per hour. They are 37 to 65 inches long, 36 inches high at the shoulder. The males can weigh between 89 and 121 pounds, and the females between 98 and 141 pounds. And that's right, the females are larger than the males with this species. The females, young and old, are dominant over the males. They live in large communities called clans. They are very social animals and communicate by making barking sounds. And they are smart, very smart. They have the intelligence enough to be cunning to figure out complicated hunting strategy and problem solving. They have been looked down upon throughout human history, but they've proved to be adaptable and a very successful species. And those are our three mystery animal sounds for today. Now, usually in this last segment, I read a poem or a quote about animals. But today I'm going to continue with playing for you from the audiobook version of my novel called Noah, An Animal Adventure Fantasy. And it's something I had been thinking of for, for quite some time, and I wrote this last year. It's available in print and also as a Kindle book and also as an audiobook. All that can be found on Amazon. The audiobook can also be found on audible.com. So here is chapter number two from Noah, An Animal Adventure Fantasy. Chapter two. Welcome to the Southwest Zoo. Joining 175 million people per year who visit zoos around the world. Enjoy your day. The front entrance PA system barked greetings and welcome. Noah stared up at the cashier as she handed back his mother's credit card. He wondered why adults talk so strange sometimes. He thought that they talk at times like they were reading something instead of just talking. He shook his head and walked away from the cashier's stand. He stopped a few steps away from his parents and waited for them to catch up. He was suddenly a bit excited about being at the zoo that particular day. He didn't know why. He opened up his eyes a bit and concentrated on the sounds he was hearing nearby and deeper into the green forest of the zoo. He heard the low murmur of nearby human conversation, tried to pick up a line or two of conversation. Noah was very observant and tried always to place himself in the moment, not wanting to miss anything. He heard distant squawking and cries coming from the animal enclosures and exhibits well past the wall of souvenir shops food stands, and signboards directly in front of him. His mother unfolded a map of the Southwest Zoo. It was considered the best zoo for hundreds of miles. His father tagged along silently, heaving a long sigh of discomfort. Noah was unsure whether or not his father was thrilled to be at the zoo, 
Maybe he had a golf game on his mind, or spending time in the garage with his Ford Mustang rebuild. Sweetheart, where should we go first? What land or animals would you like to see? His mother asked. Noah stared down at the map, then looked up at his mother. He shrugged his shoulders. I don't know. His father finally spoke up. We'll let you pick where you want to go first. We'll walk around for a bit and then grab a burger someplace. How does that sound? Noah looked up at his father and shrugged his shoulders. So far, he was not Mr. Excitement or Mr. Enthusiasm that day. Noah seemed to sink back into disinterest. His mother asked again, Where would you like to go first, Noah? Again, he shrugged his shoulders. He scanned the several manicured paths ahead. He saw people of all ages strolling, shoulder to shoulder. They, too, scanned their zoo maps, thrust in their faces at the cashier's stand. The paths all looked the same. Then he heard his name whispered. He turned towards the direction of the sound. There, he thought, the path on the extreme right. Was that someone I know who just called out to me? What? Noah said quietly. His mother spoke up again. I said, where would you? He raised his arm and pointed to the path on the extreme right. There, I want to go there. His mother looked at the map and said, Okay, good. That is towards the animals of Asia. On the lower level, the panda bears. Sound good, everyone? His father nodded in agreement as Noah started to briskly walk to the chosen path and away from the open plaza entrance of the zoo. His parents quickly followed. As they entered the path, it narrowed. Trees, shrubs, and bushes began to form a lane. Noah looked at the signs and the people. He kept walking as he stared at a small introductory enclosure display of small monkeys and nearby squawking parrots. A bit further, Noah slowed as he saw a sign ahead, and to his right, with arrows pointing down toward the panda habitats on the lower level. He made a beeline directly toward the top of a pathway that led to that lower level. His parents had to quicken their step to catch up. Noah stopped at the top of the path and looked down along its lines as it turned to the right and then to the left and then disappeared as it continued its descent. A wall and ceiling of green trees and tropical plants covered the walkway. The foliage formed a cocoon over and around the beckoning narrow asphalt trail. The light was cut off from the partly cloudy sky, and it was quite a bit darker the further the path continued downward. Noah was transfixed by that green tunnel as it moved away and down toward infinity. His parents then turned to their left. A small commotion around two free-strolling peacocks that were putting on a show for an audience of human onlookers was ahead. People were ogling and awing and snapping pictures of the beautiful birds as the peacocks gloriously and slowly unfurled their plumage. 
The performance by the brightly colored birds was quite dramatic, but Noah was not paying attention. His mother pulled out a compact camera from her purse. She looked toward Noah's father. Oh, let's get a picture too. Aren't they beautiful? Noah continued to be transfixed by the sloping green path that was below and beyond. I want to go there. I want to go there, he murmured to himself. His mother said to Noah, Stay right here, Noah. I want to see these two beautiful birds. She handed her husband the small point-and-shoot camera. Honey, take a few shots for me. He grabbed the camera and looked down at his son. Noah, stay here. We'll be right back. This will only take a sec. We'll head down to the pandas when we come back. Stay here. The last stay here was a firm command. His parents then scurried away, not that far, maybe 20 or 25 feet. Noah watched them over at the growing crowd of peacock admirers. Noah didn't care. He turned back to the path and its green canopy. He thought he heard barely his name whispered again. Noah, come visit. Chapter 2 for Noah, an animal adventure fantasy. We'll do chapter number 3. I'll play that for you next week on episode number 36. I want to thank you very much for joining me for this episode. It was a content-loaded episode for sure. I hope you agree. Looking forward again to being with you next week. And in the meantime, though, you can visit our websites at zooanimals, that's plural, zooanimals.info. My main author website is at frederickfisherman, spelled F-I-C-H-M-A-N, dot com. If you want to support everything that we do here at Visit the Zoo, you can go to our Patreon site, which is at patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com, slash visit the zoo. And don't forget about our brand new apparel store that just opened up, and we're going to be adding designs as the weeks go on, so check back often. And that's at www.zazzle, that's spelled Z-A-Z-Z-L-E dot com forward slash zooswear, Z-O-O-Z-W-E-A-R. That's the name of the company or the store name I've given to all of our merch there on zazzle.com forward slash Zooswear, Z-O-O-Z-W-E-A-R. Thank you again for joining me. I hope you'll be with us again next week. Take care. Bye for now. <laughs> <laughs>